Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? We're looking today at two verses, which should startle us, and we pray that they do, because if these scriptures startle us, then it is most likely a sign that they don't apply to us, and that is my prayer. I'm going to pick it up uh, in verse 22. I'm going to go all the way through verse 32. We'll be looking today at verses 31 and 32, but I want to give you the context. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we encounter this text this morning, as we hear what our Lord has to say to us about the possibility, Lord, that we could never be forgiven, that there is something of which we could participate in that would remove us from your grace. Knowing just how abundant and how seemingly infinite your grace and your mercy is, Lord, it, it startles us to encounter a text like this. So, Lord, we just pray that you would open our minds to understand that your spirit would shine upon the text, that you would illuminate the word before us, that we would be able to grasp it with our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that as we encounter this text, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be a little bit bothered that our consciences would be a little bit pricked. That in that moment we would have assurance that in fact these verses don't apply to us in this room. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word today in our hearts. Let your truth lodge deeply in our souls and strengthen our faith as we hear your son speak to us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I came across an article this past week. Um, 
it, uh, it was referenced on uh, the Wall Street Journal. You had to actually go to the American Association of Psychology and you had to actually pay for the complete article. It was a study, a comprehensive study that was conducted in the United States, in Canada, as well as in Great Britain. The title alone should intrigue you. I'll read you the title. Scientists discover that atheists might not actually exist. Now, you're chuckling, and that's good, because I thought to myself, this is great. I want to read this article. It's not a joke. The headline is not a joke. The first sentence, if the title didn't grab you, hopefully the first sentence will. It makes the statement, while militant atheists like Richard Dawkins may be convinced that God doesn't exist, God if he does exist, may be amused to find that atheists like Richard Dawkins don't exist. That's just funny. <laughs> like, uh, God is up in heaven, and he's like reading this journal, thinking, okay, what's this guy got to say about the world? And then this guy is saying, hey, atheists might not actually exist after all. Whew, that's a load off of God's mind, let me tell you. I, uh, I'm sure he's relieved to know that scientists, science has figured that out. The, uh, the journal, the report, it's, it's published in the, American, the Journal of American Psychology, and the report uh, deals with some problems that exist in the psych psyche, the, the mind, the spirit, the soul, whatever you want to call it, of the atheist. The atheist tells himself there's no God, but the atheist can't quite bring himself to fully believe it. And that's what the study sets out to demonstrate. I won't get into all of the specifics, but uh, basically they, they did a, a nationwide study, they asked a whole bunch of questions, and the study was actually prompted by atheists who still struggle with the fact that they still believe. They don't like that. A couple of key quotes here. These are all atheists speaking. Every single person I'm going to quote to you here is an avowed atheist, a person who is convinced that there is no God, but for some reason just can't stop thinking about him. In other words, they are certain that he's not there, and they are really angry that he won't go away. Here's a quote. Atheism is psychologically impossible because of the way humans are created. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's one of those moments where it's like, I agree with you, but do you hear yourself speaking right now? That's from... That is from Graham Lawton, who is an avowed atheist participating in this study. He is a professor at this, the, uh, the University of the State of Washington, just a little bit south of here. He makes a statement, atheism is psychologically impossible because of the way humans are created. And you hear that word from a man who swears there is no God, and you think, thank you. That's helpful for me. That's helpful. He goes on to say, the point of all of this is that uh, people who claim to be committed atheists still regrettably hold tacitly to certain religious beliefs, such as the existence of an immortal soul. Graham Lawton, the atheist from the state of Washington, University of the State of Washington, went on to say that a good friend of his died and he felt compelled to go to the funeral to say goodbye. But his friend is just a material entity, there's no soul, there's no afterlife, and he struggled psychologically with not thinking he needed to say goodbye, but yet feeling deep in his soul that he had to say goodbye. And that's a problem for an atheist. 
because there's not supposed to be a soul. There's not supposed to be anybody listening to you in the hereafter. That's not supposed to exist. And yet he couldn't shake it. They conducted a study. I won't go again into all the details of the study. They uh, looked at a number of different things, such as prayer, such as meditation, having a quiet time. You'd be startled to find that 38% of individuals who claim to be atheists still pray to a God that they don't believe in. 38%. This is a quote from uh, Dr. Clint Boyer. He is also an atheist who participated in the study. And he said, from childhood, people form enduring, stable, and important relationships, usually with fictional characters, imaginary friends, deceased relatives, unseen heroes, and perhaps fantasized mates, such as Jesus, Buddha, or perhaps a loved yet deceased spouse. I tell myself they are not there, and yet I talk to them all, an internal monologue which I can't make stop. In fact, the study goes on to look at a number of different individuals that surveyed over 10,000 participants. 38% across the United States, Great Britain, and Canada who identified themselves an atheist went on to say that they still believe in a higher power and that when they're in trouble, they still pray to him. I uh, served, I have... I'm a veteran. I served in the United States military. And there's an expression that we have. No such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. They don't exist. When you're in trouble, despite every effort of your will to force yourself to think that there is no God, deep in your soul, everyone knows that there is. I don't need a multi-million dollar psychology report to tell me this. I just thought that was interesting that they should have that struggle. I already knew this to be the case from God's word. It says in Romans chapter 1, Paul making this statement, his invisible attributes, talking about God, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on to say that they're without excuse. Everybody knows that there's a God. As we consider the Pharisees, they're not atheists, but they might as well be. They do hold in a higher power, they do believe in God, but when they come face to face with him, He's not the God that they want. We looked at it last week, and I'm just going to review for you really briefly before we get to this text. Jesus is going to give these guys a warning. It's a warning which needs to be heard by anybody who is trying to force themselves to the conclusion that there is no God, even though deep in their soul they struggle with the fact that he's really there. It's a warning that should apply to anyone who is persistent on rejecting God's grace when they know there is a God who offers grace. Types of individuals that we're talking about are individuals that are quite well personified by the Pharisees. They come face to face with Christ. He works a powerful miracle in their presence. They know it's of God. And yet they foist this sort of illogical, irrational argument saying that the reason it's not really of God is because it's of Satan. 
They know it's of God, but in order to rationalize that Jesus is not the son of God, not the son of David, in response to the assertion of the crowd, they ask the question, could this be the son of David? The Pharisees, no, no, it's not the one we want. It's not the God we like. Therefore, he's working by the power of Satan. Number one, it's illogical. They say he's working by Satan. Jesus shows them that it's illogical. In verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided will stand. If Satan's casting out Satan, Satan's divided. How can Satan's kingdom stand? In other words, the way you're approaching this does not make any sense. Number two, it's prejudice. Verse 27, Jesus asked the question, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, how are your own sons doing it? And see, they applied a certain logic to Jesus' approach of ministry, which they weren't willing to apply to their own children, to their own son's approach to ministry. Therefore, it's clearly prejudice in the way that they're approaching Christ. Jesus calls them out for it. Number three, it's flat out rebellious. Verse 28, Jesus makes the statement, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They know it. They know it. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, he is present here in Christ. And they say, we don't want it, which leads to this statement in verse 31. Look with me. He makes this statement, therefore, now the therefore is, this is a concluding sort of statement. As a result of his entire rebuttal to what the Pharisees are saying, he's summarizing it all this way. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But, adversative, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, the Pharisees are trying real hard to be basically atheists, although they're not true atheists in the sense that they will recognize a higher power, they will recognize God, they just don't like Jesus, who is God. They may have, at this point, committed the unforgivable sin. They may have, at this point, blasphemed against the Spirit, blasphemed the Spirit's work in their souls, they may be, on, may be beyond the reach of forgiveness. I don't know absolutely beyond a fact that they are, and certainly not all of them. We read in the book of Acts that numerous Pharisees and individuals of that party came to faith after Pentecost. So we know that a number of them did convert. We also read the account of Nicodemus, who was clearly a believer. And yet they're a part of this group of Pharisees. So we're not going to condemn the whole group of them, but it's reasonable to suspect that Jesus gives a warning to this group because at least within this group, there are some of them who either are beyond forgiveness or are getting really close to it. Look at the text. Jesus Jesus creates an interesting parallel here. Verse 30, uh, verse 31, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy against the Spirit 
will, sorry, I skipped a verse, skipped a line. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, he makes a statement. Every sin, every sin, every blasphemy, every sin you commit, everything you do wrong, every lie you tell, every person you cheat, every commandment you break, everything you do, every sin and blasphemy, it can be forgiven. Everything can be forgiven, but... The blasphemy against the Spirit cannot be forgiven. So in one statement, without qualification, in, in one, at the first half of the statement, he says everything you, could, you do can be forgiven. And that resonates well with our understanding of God. He's God of grace. He's God of mercy. He's the God who sends his own Son, who himself comes in the likeness of a man, just like you and me, taking our sins upon him paying the penalty we rightfully ought to pay, the penalty of death. He takes that for us so that we don't have to pay that penalty, that we can be forgiven. We encounter a God who loves us so much that he would rather die than spend an eternity without us. He would rather die for us, to bring us to be with him. That's love. Then he makes the second statement, he says, the one thing that you can't be forgiven of is a blasphemy against the Spirit. Now, Matthew makes it apparently clear in his gospel as he's writing this that the precondition to forgiveness is, anybody? Repentance. We can be forgiven. Jesus isn't saying you can just go on living in sin, you can just go on living your life however you want to live it, it doesn't really matter condition for forgiveness from the Father is always clear. You have to have faith and repentance. Having a relationship with the Son is more than just simple intellectual academic knowledge that there is this guy, his name is Jesus, he lived on this earth, he's God, and he died on the cross for your sins. You have to know that, you have to place your faith in that, and you have to repent from your sins to receive the forgiveness that he offers. It's not saying that you have to be perfect, it's not saying that you have to live a perfect life. It is saying that as you draw near to him as your king, there has to be the desire out of a relationship with him to honor him as your Lord, which means sometimes, a lot of times in fact, there's the things you want to do and there's the things he clearly commands you to do, which means if he's your Lord, you honor him with your life, you choose what he wills for you, not what you will for you. That desire of repentance to commit your life to him opens the floodgates of mercy. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be committed. And we come to this next phrase here where it says, the blasphemy of the Spirit will never be forgiven. Now, some of us are sitting here thinking, okay, so if I take Jesus' name in vain, it's all right. If I say something derogatory or, or untrue or false about God the Father, it's all right. But I better not say anything bad about the Holy Spirit. Better talk positively about the Holy Spirit. Because if I say something derogatory about the Holy Spirit, then I'm, I'm a goner. That's sort of the idea that you get here when you look at this, this verse. Blasphemy, as we typically understand it, it's when you defame the character of God. It's a, a sin that is committed directly against God in which you say something or you think something or you believe something, perhaps, and you propagate that item to other individuals that is patently false. When we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that what Jesus has in view here? 
just verbally speaking something about the Holy Spirit that is untrue or false or slanderous. I had a, a woman uh, a number of years ago who was utterly convinced that she loved the Lord, read her Bible daily, and was utterly convinced that she had committed the unforgivable sin because in just a random thought, a random passing thought, she had thought something extremely derogatory or blasphemous about the Holy Spirit, and it just ate her up. She still came to church, still participated in the choir, but had this notion that she was a goner, but she still wanted to be a part of the church. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Verse 31, he says, every blasphemy can be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit can't. The condition to forgiveness is repentance. In order to be forgiven, you have to repent. Which means that when Jesus says here, given the context of his dispute with the Pharisees, when he references blasphemy of the Spirit, he's talking about something that places you in a position where you can't be forgiven because you can't repent. When Jesus says the blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come, he's not talking about saying something derogatory regarding the Spirit. He's talking about rejecting the Spirit in such a way that it's not that you couldn't be forgiven if you wanted to be forgiven. It's that you do not choose forgiveness, therefore you do not choose repentance, and therefore you are beyond forgiveness. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John. The question is very pivotal. You see, we're talking about the Trinity. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, and you've got the Spirit. And Jesus is pretty clear. You can, you can say blasphemous things about God the Father, you know, and you'll be forgiven. You can, you can blaspheme Jesus, and you'll be forgiven. It's the blasphemy of the Spirit from which you will not be forgiven. I want you to go with me to John chapter 16. The question needs to come in our minds. What's different about this? It can't simply be a defamation of character, because when we think about Jesus, the Son, God, the Father, and the Spirit, the Trinity is one. We worship one God in three persons. They are co-equal, co-eternal, yet three distinct persons. Yet there is something particular about the Spirit that, in terms of the way we relate to the Spirit, it can become an unforgivable sin. Yet, the Spirit as a person is one and the same with the Son and the Father. Yet, as Jesus is teaching here, we can say bad things and have derogatory comments to make about the Father and the Son, and we can be forgiven of that. Yet, when it comes to the Spirit, in terms of the relationship that we have with the Spirit, this is where things get dicey, which means that Jesus' teaching on the blasphemy of the Spirit has to be understood in the unique role that the Spirit plays. Namely, the role that the Spirit plays in convicting us of our sin and guiding us into the truth. Look with me, John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus 
night before he's going to be crucified, is with his guys. He's teaching them. He tells them, it's better for you that I leave, which to all of us, we're thinking, that doesn't make any sense. We like Jesus here face to face. We don't want this spirit person. We want the flesh and blood God with us. But he says, nope, it's better for me to leave because then you'll have the spirit. And he makes a statement, when he comes, look at this, he will, number one, convict. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. In other words, there's a lot more ministry that Jesus wants to have happening. But you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. There's a twofold ministry to what the Spirit is doing. Number one, he's convicting us of our sins. He's showing us our need for a Savior. And number two, he's guiding us into all truth. He is guiding us deeper into our knowledge of Christ and therefore guiding us deeper in our walk with Christ. That's a distinct ministry from Jesus. Did Jesus hang out with people? Absolutely. Did he converse and dialogue with the disciples? Absolutely. Did they grow deeper in their relationship with Jesus just by hanging out with Jesus? Absolutely. However, Jesus is ascended on high. I've never seen him face to face. Neither have you. But we have a personal relationship with him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Christ's primary function, his primary ministry in addition to all the wonderful miracles he worked and all the good deeds that he did, the greatest thing he came to do, the singular purpose for which he was born, the real meaning behind Christmas, which we are about to celebrate, is that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, the role that he plays in our lives, is to convict us of our sin, to bring into our minds and into our souls an awareness of our guilt before God so that we could have a relationship with the Father. And subsequent to our repentance, the Spirit comes to indwell us and then proceeds to discipling us, guiding us into all truth, guiding us deeper in our walk with Christ. Just this past week, I met with an individual. It is becoming more and more common uh, in my in my ministry. It, it almost was unheard of. I uh, actually I spent a little time on the phone with my pastor back in Texas. More, more and more, you uh, in, in pastoral ministry, what what pastors are encountering, myself included, is uh, we we have to. It is necessary for us to counsel with individuals who are the victims of child abuse, who have been molested as as children. And that's quite a tragic thing. The, the ramifications of that are 
it's all, it's in, it can impact every area of your life. It's all, all consuming. If you've been molested as a child and you, uh, you know, 20 years ago and you're married now and you have kids, it impacts your relationship with your spouse, it impacts your relationship with your children, it impacts relationships across the larger family spectrum. There's fear, there's anxiety, there's uncertainty. You as a parent become unsure of your, of your relationship with your children. Are you, are you disciplining them correctly? You as a parent become unsure, insecure of your relationship with your spouse. Fear and anxiety regarding your spouse and your spouse's relationship with your children. It, it impacts your marriage, it impacts the relationship you have with your kids, it impacts the relationship you have with your broader family. More and more, I find myself in, in, involved in ministry with individuals who struggle, who are the victims of, of abuse. As a child of God created in the image of God, you are entitled to inalienable rights before the Lord. It is sin. It is horrific sin to abuse a small child. And the thing that is so difficult is that in almost all of these cases, without exception, the abuse has been perpetrated by a loved one, a close family member. And so as you meet with this individual to begin talking through these things, they, they struggle with anger. And if they're Christian, this sort of sense in their mind that they need to forgive and turn the other cheek, so to speak. So there's this sense of anger that justice has not been done. And then there's also this sort of conflicting idea in our mind that we should pretend like it never happened. As I talk with these individuals, invariably, as they've grown older, and this loved one is still a member of their family, they will say things like, well, he's changed now. He's a different person. To which I follow that up with the question, is he a Christian? No, he's not. Did he ever go to counseling? Did he ever plead guilty to his crimes? Or has this gone unreported for the last 20, 30 years now? And every once in a blue moon, that's the case. To my knowledge, it has never become public. He has never turned himself in. He's never filed any kind of a thing with the RCMP. He's never sought counseling, which the scriptures tell me. There's no reason to think that as a child molester, if he's never found Christ, he's never received the gospel, he's never been to counseling, there's no reason to think that he's not still preying upon children. You see, we're all monsters. We're all sinful. For different individuals, it's different things. We all have our own unique idols. But we're beholden to those idols. We crave those things. And the most difficult piece of advice that I have to give to individuals on occasion 
if this person is not a Christian, even though he is a member of your family and even though it will undoubtedly rock your entire family, as a Christian yourself, you have an obligation to report what you know so that the children who live in community with this individual are protected. Sometimes, you'll meet a person who was molested as a child, and you ask the question, did the individual who abused you, did they come to faith in Christ? Yes, they did. You begin to work to restore that relationship to bring about reconciliation. And the question is asked, do you understand the truly heinous nature of what you have done? Yes, I do. Are you prepared to accept the consequences for your crime? This isn't like speeding. It's not like we did five kilometers over the speed limit here. You've committed a crime. And God has appointed our governing authorities and our government to rule over us. They are his servants. They are his magistrates for a reason, for the upholding of the law, and for the preservation of good, and for the well-being of society. And this is really where it gets nuts and bolts, guys. If you are a Christian and you stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ, as we sang about a little while ago, and you celebrate his justice and his holiness, are you not prepared to give yourself up to the authorities? and to plead guilty for what you have done and to accept whatever consequences may come from that. The reason why I counsel people that way, though it is severe, some consider that to be too far, is because it is what is honoring to the Lord's word to give ourselves up for the crimes we've committed. But even for Christians, you and me in this room, we tend to minimize our sin. We tend to justify the things we do wrong. And sometimes, in particularly heinous situations such as child abuse, you really need not only the church to declare to you the true nature of what you've done, you need a judge and a jury. You need to be convicted. When Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit comes to convict, as sinners, we don't fully understand the ramifications of our sin. And even if we can acknowledge to some extent that we're okay, not perfect, or yes, what I did was wrong, we still don't see it And we can never see it clearly unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to grasp it. If we never grasp the true nature and the true horror of what we've done and more fundamentally who we are, then we could never truly approach the throne of God asking for the grace that we deeply need 
It's the difference between asking for God to pay off an infinite debt versus loaning you 50 cents. We have to approach him real and authentically with a true appreciation of who we are. And the only person that does that, that opens our eyes to see that, to grasp that, in the same way that it might take a judge to help a child molester understand just the true horror and the true nature of what he's done, in the same way that it's going to take a prison sentence, in some instances, for a person to fully grasp just how badly they've hurt someone. You can't understand the true nature of who you are and what you've done against the God of the universe unless the Holy Spirit is your judge and brings conviction into your life. When the Pharisees see Jesus for who he is, they say, he's with Satan. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy against Jesus. That's not the big issue here. Jesus, in responding to the Pharisees, he proves that their whole line of thinking, their whole thought process is illogical, irrational, prejudiced, and wrong. It is in rebellion to the word of God. His warning is, you can be forgiven just now in this moment of accusing Christ of working with Satan, because that is blasphemy. That can be forgiven if you repent of it. That cannot be forgiven if you don't repent of it. Because forgiveness only comes when you repent. In order to repent, you need the Spirit to convict you. And the real danger, Bridge Baptist Church, is sinning against the Spirit's work in your soul in such a way that you no longer feel conviction for sin and you no longer sense his presence in your life guiding you to the truth. We read this article about these atheists, 40% of them, 40% of them, despite their best efforts, intellectually forcing themselves to deny the reality of God, and yet when they're being really honest deep down in their gut, they still know he's there and they hate him for still being there. And yet, as an act of their will ruling over their mind, as an act of their will ruling over their soul, they're trying to force themselves to deny the reality of a God. 40% of atheists still think he's there. And the other side of that equation is that there are 60% who no longer struggle with those thoughts. See, that statistic has two sides to it. 40% hate the fact that they still have these thoughts, hate the fact that they still feel like they need to pray to a God whom they're telling themselves over and over and again, he's not there and he doesn't exist. Well, there are 60% of atheists who don't have that problem. In other words, there are 60% of these group of individuals who are never going to come to God, never going to ask for forgiveness. They are never going to repent and they don't feel anything about it. There's no conviction in their souls. There's no sorrow. There's no sadness. There's no remorse. And so for that group, it's realistic to say, it's fair to say, that they 
may have committed the unforgivable sin from which there can be no coming back. Some are saying, okay, so basically you can be forgiven of anything, even including, you know, saying bad things about the Holy Spirit, so long as you repent. So if I can repent, I can be forgiven. So what that means is that I've got until I die to repent, right? So I can just go on living my life, even saying derogatory things about the Holy Spirit if I want, so long as right before I croak on my deathbed in the hospital down at Royal Inland, if I can just somehow pray a prayer of forgiveness, then I'll be good. In other words, it's death that puts us beyond the realm of forgiveness. But again, look closely at the text. Look at what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Notice the last phrase. Notice it carefully. Either in this age or the age to come. What Jesus is saying there, if repentance is the condition to forgiveness, he is saying you can live in such a way that your soul can become so twisted and so perverse that in this age, before you die, time still left on the clock, you're beyond salvation because your soul is twisted in such a way you have grieved the Holy Spirit in such a way that he has withdrawn from you and now you are left to your own devices and he will no longer because of the way you have grieved him. Continuing to think illogically, continuing to insist against all the reason and all the evidence to the contrary that there is no God, that Jesus is not true, that there is no salvation on the cross. Sooner or later, the Holy Spirit gets tired according to the teaching of Christ right here in this passage. And he says, have it your own way. Not, you're good up until the moment you die, and as long as you can pray a prayer of forgiveness right before you croak on your deathbed, you're fine. Jesus makes it clear, no, it'll happen in your life to where you come to a point to where that's never going to happen. Christopher Hitchens is one of the new atheists. He passed away not too long ago. He died of esophageal cancer. He was a hard drinker and a hard smoker. His motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and this is all the life that we have. And he lived it up. He ate, he drank, he smoked, and he did everything he could to be merry. And as a result of his hard-smoking cigar, cigarette ways, he contracted, they're quite sure as a result of his lifestyle choices, esophageal cancer. The pain was so overwhelming. He wrote during the last days of his life, Christopher Hitchens, that he was still tempted to beg to God for mercy. And he wrote in the last article he ever wrote, it was published after he died, he said, you might read or hear from some nurse attending to me in the hospital during my final moments who might testify to the fact That in my final moments of pain and agony, I cried out to Christ. I cried out to Jesus and I asked for forgiveness. In this article published after Christopher Hitchens died, he wrote, I want you to know that while that may have happened, that was not the real Christopher Hitchens. For there is no God. I'm just telling you guys, 
I've been to the hospital a few times now. Loved ones who are elderly, who are dying. I've seen on a couple of occasions. Children, believers, who have a loved one who is in the hospital, who is dying, congestive heart failure, pulmonary failure, some, some kind of failure, old, 89, 90 years old, lived a full life, their body is just shutting down now. And they want grandma or they want their mom to do business with God before they die. And a couple of years ago, I went down to Royal Inland Hospital, having been asked by a family who just called me. They had a Baptist background. They wanted a Baptist minister to come and talk with their mom before she passed. It's the most heartbreaking thing you ever see. Their children love her. They don't want this to be the last moment. They don't want this to be it forever. And they're hoping against hope that maybe something will change. There is still time left. And so I get the call and I go. But even though there is still time left, the game is largely over. I'm not saying that it's impossible for people to convert on their deathbed. I'm just saying that by the time you get to that point, they really truly have already made their decision. I sat and talked to this woman, brought all of my good apologetics notes, didn't know if maybe it was an evidentiary concern that she had. There's no real evidence for Christ. I came prepared to do business to try and argue her into faith. You can't do that, guys. And she said, I'm fine. I appreciate your concern. I'm going to get out of here. This is just a temporary setback. I'll be, I'll be back home by this time next week. There's no need for me to have God now. If I really get worried about it, I'll call you tomorrow. Well, she didn't live to see the next day. So as I'm sitting here talking to you, if I could summarize it in this way, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that internal witness in your soul from God that there is a God, that He does love you. And if you hear that and you respond to that, that's great. This text does not apply to you. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your soul, that's wonderful. You are saved. And there is nothing that can snatch you out of the hands of Christ. If you're here today, and I'm preaching this passage to you, and you know you're not a Christian, and you feel nothing at all, I would be very worried. If you are spiritually numb to the call of Christ, to trust in Him. If you feel no conviction, if you sense no inner call, then if I was you, I would be very, very, very worried. Of course, I'm not you. You're you. So my hope is that you have not crossed over in this life with seconds still left on the clock beyond the reach of Christ.
for these atheists who participated in this survey, 40% of them, 38 and a half or whatever the number was, they still pray. They still think about him. They still are bothered by him being there. It's not too late for them, but it's getting awfully close. Bridge Baptist Church, this scripture just goes hand in hand with the reality that if you know enough to repent, then you know everything you need to know, and there's no second, there's no reason for waiting one second longer. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, and you know you need to, and you never have, there's no reason. There is absolutely no justifying putting it off to another day. Not that you'll die tomorrow, not that you'll die in a car wreck on your way home, not going to threaten you with any of those things, though it's possible, not necessarily likely. The reality is far more serious. The reality is far more dangerous. Not that you would die and go to hell having suffered a physical death, but that you would live this life having put yourself beyond forgiveness and then have an eternity of reflecting on the fact that you squandered it for so many, many years. Come today. Come now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray.